1: This is Arscast
2: Extra? Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunner Blog, James. Good morning to you and to everybody associated with Arsenal. Badly morning to you for what you did to us last night.
1: <laughs> yeah, badly morning to to all the guys at Arsenal. Uh, how you doing, <laughs> Andrew?
2: I'm all right. I'm all right. I I'm feeling a little remorseful, a little rueful, a little shamed. I I rage a, a packet of yellow M&M's
1: last night. Right. Okay. A small packet or no. a big packet? Not okay. not
2: the big, big packet, but not the small packet either. The kind of medium packet.
1: Sure. A grab bag. Yeah. I had,
2: some or, or half time, I had some at halftime. Had some at halftime. And then at the end, I was like, okay, it's a little bit better, but pff, I need this sugar. I need the sugar. What can I tell have you? you?
1: Have you got a sort of sh- uh, an M&M hangover?
2: This morning. Something like that. Something like that. I suppose it could be worse. There are worse hangovers you could be having, such as, you know, whiskey or football. Uh, Oh, shit, Mm -hmm. I've got one of those as well. I've got a football (laughs) hangover, too.
1: Uh, How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. I'm good. I've got a cough, but not one of the bad coughs. It's just a cough.
2: Okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. Okay, look, I, we're de- delaying the inevitable because we're going to have to get into this and talk about Arsenal's 2-1 defeat to Villarreal in the Europa League semi-final first leg in Spain. What's your overriding feeling this morning, the first thing that comes to your head? Because for me, I, you know, it's very much a case of, well, that could have been much, much
1: worse. Yeah, that's mine too. I feel relieved. I feel relieved and I... Um... You know, I know there's a lot to be disappointed about in that performance, but the result, I think, given uh, how badly we played for quite a lot of it and the nature of the goals we conceded, Mm. you know, it's not a complete disaster, which, to be honest, for a long time in that game, I thought we are headed for complete Mm. disaster, particularly when we went down to 10 men, of course. So to be in the tie um, feels a little fortuitous and, yeah, a significant relief
2: right so yeah I mean I can't disagree with any of that uh, I was fearing the worst at 2 nil down I was fearing much worse uh, when we went down to 10 men and that yeah. frustration I'm sure is something we'll talk about because you know who couldn't have seen that coming uh, but we'll get into the the meat and drink of that a, a bit later on but mm. you know we are still in it that is the thing we are still in this tie an away goal is useful um, the 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 glass half full versus the glass half empty is, of course, you know, we can't keep clean sheets. So we're going to have to score some goals in the second leg. But that's a bridge we can cross a, a little later when we come to it. So let's talk about the team and the team selection. And I suppose the the place to start is the, is the deployment of Emile Smith-Rowe as a false nine. Now, the UEFA graphic showed Nicolas Pepe playing up front but the UEFA graphic uh, graphic also showed us playing a a 3-5-1-1 formation so that wasn't right we knew that wasn't right i i was uh, i was almost kind of looking forward to seeing pepe up front if that's what it was because it was unconventional and i was thinking well that's interesting because you have that left-hand side where you're going to have Smith-Rowe, and you've got Ceballos doing that thing ahead of Shaq at left-back, which, of course, you know is an imperfect thing, but we've talked the arse out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got Pepe up front who who has finishing ability, he has movement, he's got pace. You know, he's a little—he's not what you would consider a, a natural centre-forward or anything, but I was thinking, well, like, well, if we don't know what the hell he's going to do in that position, neither do either of the, um, the Villarreal centre-halves. Unfortunately, very quickly, it turned out that that uh, was not going to be the case. So what did you make of the decision to go with this formation, this setup, and Smith-Rowe as the false nine?
1: Yeah, I wasn't that surprised that it was Smith-Rowe rather than Pepe. I think I even tweeted about it before the match, because ultimately this team shape is essentially a continuation of the one that we first saw against Sheffield United. And I remember in that game, you know, Martinelli played on the left-hand side and he was the highest Arsenal player by a distance. If you looked at the heat maps at the end of the game, he was, you know, significantly further ahead of Lacazette, who was dropping much deeper near the halfway line. And I thought that they would try and replicate that with Pepe as a mm. kind of wide striker uh, and Smith Rowe linking things up in the middle. That said, I didn't like it on paper because... You know, everyone makes a lot of Manchester City playing with this kind of system at the moment. But I would point out that Pep Guardiola's several years into his project at Manchester City (laughs) and working with the best players, you know, pretty much in the league, in the world, possibly. And it's something he's spent season upon season developing till till the team were at the right point in their tra- trajectory to be able to do that, you know. It's kind of the ultimate evolution of his system and has been widely presented as such. For us to be able to just pull it out of the bag, After, you know, seemingly at random. Yeah. I know. Uh, I, yeah.
2: And We had like a week or a week... Uh, basically a full week to work on the training ground, right? Um, After the Everton game on Friday, there was, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, where they could train and they could do this and they could work on it. And I can see, you know, some justification for it from that perspective. But like you say, if you're comparing it to Guardiola he's one of the best coaches if not the best coach in the world. Uh he's working with the best players. He's been at City for x amount of time. There's been a consistency to City's football which has allowed them to play in this way. You know, it's not as if this is you know, uh, how do I how do I put this um you know, they they they're operating from a very high bar in order mm. to implement a system like this. With the technical ability and everything else to do it. So, to me, this felt like the Ann at Man City thing. Like, what is the last thing that Unai uh, Unai Emery expects me to do? It's this. Because, like, even if you don't have Aubameyang, or Aubameyang's not fit enough to start, and Lacazette is not fit enough to start, uh, you do have Nketiah, who is... You know, a a centre forward who started the last game. You've also got Gabriel Martinelli, who I don't think those defenders would have liked to play against if he'd been playing for the 90 minutes. So I think Emery would have thought, well, if he's not going to have Aubameyang or Lacazette, it's going to be one of Enchetti or it's going to be Martinelli, one of those two, to play up top. The last thing I think he thinks Arteta will do is play Smith-Rowe as a false nine. I mean, he might even have considered Emery might even have considered the the possibility of Pepe playing up front, but not Smith Rowe. And I I think this was far more than a system designed to get the best out of the players that he had available to him, because I don't think it is the best system that we could have put in place with the players that we had in the squad last night. It was to kind of uh, blindside Emery. Mm. and it felt uh, yeah. that's it feels it, i don't know if there's is hubris the right word is arrogant the right word is i mean self belief and arrogance that go hand in hand and there's a thin line between the two but to to play that way in a european semifinal a system you've only ever played once before and it was shit It was shit against Man City. And I know you can say, well, it's very difficult to play against Man City. They can make you look shit. But it was a bad idea that day as well. It didn't work. So to sort of go so far away from the positive aspects of what we've done, uh, and I know people hate hearing about since December and since the Chelsea game, but, you know, there were some performances which were good, and we scored goals in them, you know... I, I just don't know what the fuck he was thinking. He got it really wrong for me.
1: Yeah, he did. And, and I, Emery said after the game, oh, I expected something like this. And I thought, you're bluffing, Unai. <laughs> no, you but, don't. Um, yeah, I, I, I think hubristic is the right word. I think it was too clever by halves, really. And it's not the first time we've seen that from Arteta. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I would be pretty clear-cut about this. I think he should have played Martinelli. Yes. Through the middle. Yes. Uh, you know, clearly, neither Lacazette nor Aubameyang were fit to start. If Aubameyang's fit to start, he plays, right? So, clearly, this was, uh, you know, a, a decision that wasn't ideal. But from the options he had available, I think it had to be Martinelli. Yeah. And I find it strange that it wasn't, to be quite honest with you. Like, Pepe, I'd be intrigued by it, you know? And yeah, it wouldn't he, be my first choice, though. Yeah, and listen, he did it at Lille when he first went there and it was not a success. And it was only when he moved out to the right that he really he mm. stride there. Martinelli we've seen play through the middle, under Arteta and under other managers, pretty successfully. I just feel like that was the call and he didn't make it.
2: Yeah. I, I, I can't disagree with that. I I uh maybe we'll have a question or two about Martinelli I'm later sure we on. Will, but, yeah. but yeah, I mean sometimes the most obvious option is the right option. Like, I understand the idea that you might want to tactically outsmart a manager. You might want to do something that he's not expecting. You might want to do something that causes the opposition some problems. Like, okay, how do we deal with this false nine uh, scenario? I mean, pretty easily was the answer from a Villarreal point of view, because, you know, all we seem to do was try and cross the ball to our non-existent centre forward. So I'm mm. not quite sure that we got the, the parts of the plan correct. But, yeah, you're right. Martinelli should have started last night. And...
1: And actually, I think there was a pretty good case for Pepe on the left because, you know, he certainly had the better of his man on that side. Juan Foyth, I think he caused him quite a lot of problems. And, you know, I think that would have worked had you had the right guy through the middle as well.
2: Mm. Well, yeah, he had the better of Foyth when Foyth wasn't tearing Danny Ceballos a new... Well, we'll get to that. we'll get to that. We will get to that.
1: Um... Anything else well, about the he, team? select? like, I mean, look. well, he, he stuck with Shaka at left back, didn't he? Yeah, which he shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, on, on the one hand, um, I'm not sure. I think Cedric is a better left back than Shaka. I'm really not sure about that. But
2: Shaka is a much better midfielder than Ceballos. Exactly.
1: That's the other hand, and we paid the price for that in a big way in this mm.
2: game. What about the selection of Callum Chambers? on the right-hand side. I mean...
1: just look, makes me think it's finished for Bellerin. I mean, that's, that's all I can say about that. Don't you?
2: He, yeah, I mean... I don't dislike Callum Chambers at all. I think he's a, a nice guy and a, a decent footballer, but I don't, I don't really understand how you're going into a game of this magnitude with fullbacks, one of whom is a central midfielder and one of whom despite the fact he has played quite a bit at right back, isn't really a right back. So you've got two fullbacks who aren't fullbacks. And mm. I just I just don't know that you can do that. I would have played Bellerin. I know his form hasn't been great, but he's a better right back than um, than Chambers. So, uh, look, I know there's no perfect solution there for Arteta. Similarly with the left back situation, uh, although I will again, state for the record that I think, you know, the minute tyranny was out, we should have put Bakayo Saka there and adapted further forward. I know there were some issues, but I really think that would have been the best solution to our left-back problem rather than move a a, a central midfielder there. And I, I, I'm i not being critical of Xhaka in any way because I think in general, since he moved to left-back, he has done his absolute best, and I think he's been up against some difficult opposition. I think he's handled them pretty well the last few minutes with Chukwueze. He he won about three or four tackles in a row mm-hmm. when he was exposed against him time and time and time again. His passing was off because I think he just wanted to get rid of the ball. It kept coming back. He kept having to make tackles. So it's not criticism of Xhaka, but what we've done by playing him there is we've had to completely modify the system and the way that we play to accommodate Xhaka left back. So you put Sabayas in midfield to do that hybrid role in there, blah, 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 you know, rather than just saying, okay, what is the, the closest facsimile we have to Kieran Tierney is Bukayo Saka. He's strong. He's quick. He can defend. He can get forward. He's got a left foot. He's got the ability to get up and down the pitch and do what a left back can do. And I think we've missed a trick by not playing him there from the moment Tierney was injured. But that's... That's just my contention. So,
1: yeah, I mean, no, I don't think any of us are pretending that any of these solutions are ideal, mm. you know. And, and it becomes about what what gives you the strongest overall eleven, you know, when you when you mix it up. And I'm sure Mikel Arteta would say, "Well, look, played Bukayo Saka in the final third, he wins the penalty, keeps us in the tie, gets a man sent off." But I broadly agree with you that. If you put Saka at left back and Pepe on the right wing mm. and keep Saka in midfield, I think you retain much of what we were doing well in the run where we were doing relatively well. Yeah, um, we'll never know, of course, now, but well, or, or perhaps we will. I mean, I'm hoping desperately we get Kieran Tierney mm, back
2: for sure. I mean, look, the 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 point about Saka winning the penalty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, Is fine, but that's not to say he can't get into the final third and into the penalty box if he's playing at left-back either. He got a lot
1: of assists from left-back last season.
2: He sure did. Um, So, look, you know, I think he's been and has uh, been guilty of overthinking things, uh, Arteta. And last night was an example of that, not just with the Smith-Rowe thing, but, I, uh, you know, it's been obvious that we needed to move away from shack at left-back to not have an immobile, slow-witted, slow-legged player like Danny Ceballos in midfield too. Um, so,
1: yeah. Mm. I, I think, I think, I, the thing with the at left-back thing, like, I, I don't think, I mean, obviously, we all knew that Chiquese was going to be a big problem for him and so it proved, um, even if he did kind of grow in stature in that battle as the game wore on. But without wishing to just completely uh, throw Ceballos under the bus, I do think there was a big obligation on him to provide a measure of protection, especially with Nicola Pepe playing ahead of him on that left-hand side. Uh, as I said at the start, almost playing as a kind of left-sided forward, really, more yeah. so than a midfield player. And I just felt from the kick-off, Ceballos really didn't do enough in that
2: run. No, well, I, OK, well, that, let's... Let's talk about the two goals and then we can do the Ceballos thing because I think what you just said there ties in very well to the to the discussion that we're going to have about the decision that Arteta should have made about Ceballos and didn't. Um, mm. The first goal, they beat the press, they came forward. It's
1: they beat not, the press too easily, you'd have to say. I mean, that's something Arteta yeah. spoke about after the game. I think it's probably fair.
2: Yeah, I mean... I'm not sure the press was as well coordinated as it should have been. And that, you know, given we had all these days to work on the training ground, knowing how Emery's teams like to play. Most of these players know how Emery's team likes to play, you know. That's not good enough. Ceballos couldn't get anywhere near Foyth as he came forward. Um, Not for the last time uh, in the game either. From there a little bit on it's another ahead. area by the
1: way in which Martinelli would have helped um, you know in, in terms of the press obviously we miss Lacazette I think in that role but Martinelli again is a more natural facility, uh, you know someone who can yeah. actually chase defenders down and, and be a bit more engaged but anyway yeah they get out and then as I said on Twitter last night who can possibly live with the blistering pace and dribbling skill of Juan Foyth <sighs> well I mean Ceballos couldn't Jesus.
2: Uh, You know, I tell you what, though, that was, was, uh, I hope, something, or it is something I hope that Mikel Arteta and his coaching staff look at after the game when they sit down and they analyze it and they ask themselves, how is it possible that a right back can make countless straight line runs through our midfield with the ball, without the ball, picking up the ball, Without anyone being there. Like, Sobias mm. was absent from that part. And that's another element of why we need Shaka in there because, um, you know, it's not to say that he's gonna win a foot race or anything like that, but I just think having somebody in that position who stays more or less in that position rather than flitting around the pitch like some kind of love hungry moth looking for a light like Sobias, you know, it, it, it just gives you a bit more. Uh, solidity in the centre of the pitch. I mean, we were run through time and time again. There was a moment, um, there was a chance, second half, I think it was, where they literally played a ball from the centre half. I think it came to Capu, and it was a first-time ball from Capu into Cocalan, maybe, or another central midfield player. Um, maybe that was the Moreno chance
1: yeah I think it was
2: you know and it's like hang on a minute where how how is there nobody in there how is it that you as a manager who's who's um focuses on structure and structural discipline has got a team as wide open as this where guys can either just run through the lines or pass it through the lines without anybody being anywhere near where they should have been so you know those are big big problems and big problems with the setup last night um just going back to the goal, I mean, once they got to the edge of the box, do you, do you have any? Is it one of those things that you know you can point a bit of a finger at Odegaard for not staying with the man, a bit of a finger at Partey for not, um, uh, you know, closing down a bit quicker. Sabayos and Shaka doubled up on Chukwueze, which you can yeah. understand.
1: Just I, a, I felt a, like if Shaka's a left-back, maybe he doesn't back off quite as much Mm -hmm. as he does. You know, he retreats about five or six yards into his own box, which is exactly what Jaquese wants him to do. And it means that when he tries to go past him and the ball breaks, they're in a really good position to shoot. Um, I don't think Shaka or Stabias were great on that goal at all. But, you know, for me, it all comes from the fact they beat the press and then they're just running through us. Um, yeah, and, and a terrible time to concede so early in the game yeah. and immediately hand them the initiative. I mean, Arteta sort of implied that the game plan kind of went out the window at that stage, which what to me mean? suggests it can't have been a very good game plan. No,
2: I mean, it's not a good game plan if you know if you're saying it's gone out the window because you've conceded in five minutes. I mean, that's mm-hmm. unfortunate. You don't want to do that. But if you have confidence in your plan you know it shouldn't absolutely undo every every aspect of it you know uh, it's yeah. not that he changed much anyway um so Bios, slightly involved in the second goal as well he picked up a pass from Partey terrible touch they took the ball went up got a corner from the corner uh look i think i think Pablo Marie is poor doesn't attack the ball they win a free header, flicked on. Partey doesn't stay with his man. Albiol puts it in the back of the net. 2-0, mm. inside half an hour. And at that point, I'm thinking, fuck.
1: Yeah. And and the thing is, actually, they're really poor goals to concede, both yeah. of them. I mean, this one is particularly sloppy. I think, you know, it's it's simple stuff, set pieces. And actually, stuff that we've done a bit better this season. Mm. So... Very frustrating for that to come apart in a game of this importance. Um, but yeah, at that point, I was really fearing the worst. I mean, you know, it didn't feel... It felt like they would be able to school more if they wanted to. Of course, we probably mm. owe something to the fact that they're, of course, managed by Unai Emery, who, as we know, likes to try and sit on a leap.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, before we go into, uh, you know, what should have happened at halftime and stuff like that, let's just talk about the, the chance that they had to make it 3-0. And, you know, Bernd Leno had a bit of a, a howler against Everton. He kept us in the tie with a really good save. A really good save. I know people will say it was hit straight at him, but he still had to react. He had to push it over the bar, and he Definitely, did. Yeah. Um, I think it was another example of of Pablo Marie having a distinctly average night on the pitch. Um mm-hmm. You know, when you're getting undone by a no-look Coquelin pass inside you, you you're, you're having a bad one. You're having a bad one. He was really poor on that. And there was like, there was another moment. I was looking back at the game today. And there was another moment a few minutes earlier when Moreno had a chance with his left foot and Leno made a save. It was a relatively... Uh, easy save for him. It was one of those, though, if the ball had taken a clip off a defender or an attacker, it would have gone either side of him. Uh, And I was looking at that passage of play and Pablo Marie is on the right-hand side of central midfield alongside Thomas Partey, way, way, way up the pitch. And I know that's been a little bit of a trademark of him... In certain games, and we assume that this is instruction, right, from Mikel Arteta, because players are, you know, surely not given the license to do what he uh, he does by being that high up the pitch without the manager's clear instruction, I assume, Mm. Mm. but he was nowhere absolutely nowhere and from that passage of play it was Xhaka who was in the the left centre back position there was nobody really helping him Moreno got the shot away a bit too easily because we did not have a central defender alongside Rob Holding Um, and I know we've talked about I know we've talked about him and the sample size being pretty small but I thought it was a really worrying performance from Pablo Marie last night and, and it sort of it makes me think that the the career trajectory he has had is probably more representative of his ability than people might want to consider
1: yeah possibly i mean it's still it's still only one game i think it was his worst game in an arsenal shirt definitely I thought he had a really, unless you count the sort of, you know, have a 20 minutes he played at Man City and then went off injured, you know, mm. right at the start of Project Restart. Um, I, I thought he had a really difficult night and Moreno's not the quickest, but he made Marie look slow. And I think that was just by good movement, but it seemed to completely outfox him at times. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was not a good night for him. Um but you're right to highlight Leno. I, I do think, you know, there was a lot of debate about Ben Leno should he have played this game? Ultimately, I don't think either of the goals he could have done much about. And uh, it's a really important save he yeah. makes to keep us in the time.
2: Yeah, 3-0, it's over. 3-0 and that game is over. Particularly, uh, you know, we were down to to 10 men at that point. So,
1: Well, 3-0, yeah, I was thinking if they come and score at the Emirates mm. Stadium, you, we, you need, fi- what, five? Yeah, five <laughs> So, uh,
2: just before the break, Wan uh, Foyth, a man who runs like a constipated dinosaur, yeah. surged past Danny Sabios in midfield again. Sabios tripped him up, mm-hmm. got a yellow card. No complaints whatsoever about the yellow card. And this is just before the break. They had a free kick, which I was thinking, given what Sabios you know, what, what's happened with Ceballos in the Europa League, in the knockout stages of the Europa League, where he, you know, to be fair to him, if, yeah, no, not to be fair to him, um, he, is, he has been, uh, how do I put this without making him sound like some kind of double agent or something? A saboteur. A saboteur. You know, he's made some really, really bad mistakes in the knockout stages of the Europa League, which... I suspect if if other players had made would see them less involved than Ceballos. Um But that's neither here nor there. I was expecting that free kick to go top corner though. That's what I was gonna say. It didn't. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully. So, yeah,
1: it didn't. But 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 you were right. I mean it it was a moment that illustrated the kind of night mm. Danny Ceballos was having.
2: So he should have come um, off at halftime, right? Yeah. Even, like, so. even we can all sit here as Captain Hindsight and say, well, you know, he got the red card, he got the second yellow, we could all see that coming. But, like, literally everyone could see that coming. He there should... was
1: cl- a pretty clear consensus about that. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, like, I'm not even – the yellow card isn't necessarily the main reason to take a guy off because players get booked all the time. The main reason was because he was dreadful. And they were exposing him time and time again. And our midfield was struggling and needed something different. That is why he should have come off, not necessarily just the yellow card. So were you surprised that when the teams came out at halftime, the only change was from Villarreal?
1: I was a little bit surprised, to be honest. And it's interesting, you know, we come up against Unai Emery and we're... Lamenting a lack of half time subs. I mean, this that guy loves half time subs. That was his whole thing, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, in a way, his change probably partially proved their undoing. They didn't need to change anything, no. they were really pretty comfortable. But, yeah, I. Thank you, Renaud. Thank you, Unai. Yeah, um, I must say when they scored their second goal, he—I think it's just his sort of slightly unusual facial expressions—but he looked pretty pained. On the he did. I, was like, I remember noticing like, that. Do you remember which team you're managing here? It's like, oh, um, I
2: like this, but I don't know if I should enjoy that.
1: Yeah, maybe it was his attempt at a kind of uh, you know footballer no celebration when they score against a former team. I don't know, but it was very odd. But yeah, I. I I was surprised to see Sebas come out for the second half. Who would you have brought on for him?
2: I think I would have because
1: mm. the thing is I don't think El... I think at 2-0 down, El Elneny's probably not the answer.
2: Mm, no, but I think what I would probably have done is taken like, there's part of me that would have maybe put Saka at left back, but of course you're 2-0 down, so you're taking him away from a position where he can be dangerous, you know, notwithstanding my previous point about this, which was broader about the use of Saka. So I think what I probably would have done was put Cedric on at left back, put Shaka into
1: midfield and take Sobias off. Yeah, that's what I would have done. That's what I would have done. I mean, Zobaios, you're right. He's been a man on a mission. And that mission has been to get us out of the Europa League. I mean, the guy must have money on Man United to win it, the way he's played. It's so bizarre. It is mad. It is mad. And then,
2: and then look, he, he got the second yellow. And I think, to be fair, the second yellow is, is kind of harsh.
1: I think it's harsh. I think it's harsh. As, as angry with him as we are. I think that's harsh.
2: Well, I think it's harsh, and I don't necessarily blame him for that. I certainly blame Mikel Arteta for that. And yeah. and the reason is is his post-match justification for delaying it. He said, "We talked at halftime to say we had to be very careful And there was a tackle very early, and I was going to take him off. But by that time, Gabby was ready to come on. That action happened, and he was out. So, leaving aside the fact he had 15 minutes at the break to make the decision that he should have made, he then saw Ceballos within 60 seconds, more or less, of the second half starting, commit a foul, which could have seen him sent off easily. It was a foul in midfield. Um, And if Arteta was being really, like, it doesn't stack up to say, well, I was thinking of when he made that early foul, taking him off. That was, like, the 46th minute, and it was the 58th minute or something when when Ceballos was sent off. 58th minute, you know? So you had all that time. So if you're saying to a guy, you have to be careful out there, you're on a yellow card, be careful. And within 60 seconds of, the, of the, the second half starting, he makes a foul, which could see him sent off, and you don't do anything about it as a manager. That's your fault. That's your problem. He didn't react. He didn't react quickly enough because he should have done it at halftime. And he didn't react quickly enough because he should have done it the minute Sabias got away with that foul. And I don't, I, you know, I know there's this thing that like managers, some managers think, well, a halftime change, I don't want to upset someone or I don't want to like, Humiliate it's a bit humiliating somebody, yeah. for somebody, but like your responsibility is to the team, not how a professional player earning tens of thousands of pounds a week feels for a few minutes, you know? So I, I, I found that really, really, really frustrating.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, it was clearly a huge mistake, and you're right. The blame isn't so much with Sabios. He showed us what he was going to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, he, we could all he see was it off the pace. We could all see it. Um, and actually, listen, I, I, I I've, I've got my issues with Danny Sabios. but what I would say is he is having something asked of him in the shape that we played that is slightly unusual. He's been asked to do more than one job. You know, he's kind of got to be the guy who gets outside on the left sometimes when we attack. He's got to be defensive cover at wing back. He's got to step inside and play next to Thomas Partey. You know, he's basically, in the same way that Kieran Tierney was asked to do a kind of hybrid role last season, this was a weird hybrid role too. And not every player can do that. For some players, that might be too much. And I think we saw last night that it Mm. clearly was too much. For Danny Sibusis, and yeah, it was a it was a bad moment, and and I I kind of feel and fear that if things don't work out for Mikel Arteta at Arsenal, then although Danny Sabas was kind of an unai Emery signing, he is somehow <laughs> he's come somehow a bit emblematic of Arteta's <laughs> Arsenal reign. You know, there's clearly a lot of ability and talent there, but it just hasn't always translated. He had a pretty good time in Project Restart, but apart from that, he struggled. He's linked with bigger clubs or belongs to bigger clubs, but you don't really understand why. There are <laughs> things, <laughs> sort of parallels there yeah. that strike me. Well, I, but, yeah I, yeah, I don't know. It was a bad, bad night for Ceballos.
2: It, it was. And, you know, I think... Um... You know, the the comments he made about, well, I don't think I'm really suited or Spain suits me better, I think is what he said. Something mm. like that before the game. And it's like, okay, well, go back to Spain then or stay in Spain. I've like had my fill to be perfectly honest. I accept what you're saying about his role. Um, and I think he's done it okay in a couple of games against opposition. He should be able to do it against but I think he's a player who has a far higher opinion of his own talent than anybody else does. You know, the idea that he could make it at Real Madrid seems absolutely fanciful to me. He'd be lucky to get a game for Real Court Glaze at this point, you know. And I, I just wonder, I know that broadly speaking, we were in favor generally. You know, I'm I'm not going to speak on anyone's behalf, but I think as a fan base, because of what he did in Project Restart, because he was part of the team that won the FA Cup, I think there was broad support for bringing him back on loan.
1: Well, it was cheap as well. It was an expedient it
2: solution. It was cheap. I do wonder if the minutes that he had got this season in midfield would have been better going to Ainsley Maitland-Niles. Or Joe Willock, because in terms of performance level I don't know that they would be any worse and in terms of what it might do for the development of those players even if they don't make it at Arsenal or won't make it at Arsenal you're, you're putting Premier League minutes into them which makes them more valuable if you decide to cash in and what we've done is give minutes to a player who basically doesn't want to be at this club Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I do see that point. I do see that point. I think it's a, a consequence of financial constraints, to sure. be honest. Sure, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, I get it. I,
1: I think it's about money. You know, if you want to buy Thomas Partey, you probably can't buy a central midfielder as well, you know, of the right level. Um, but I, it will be strange, won't it, to reflect on two years with Danny Ceballos, where we put quite a lot of time into his development, at some expense Mm. uh, and ultimately will get sort of nothing nothing very much out of that no decent Uh, five a side player I'd say but yeah and again you know what I'm really warming to my theme here but there there is another link with Arteta there because the thing about having an inexperienced manager is that you run the risk of doing the development for somebody else You know, you Mm. become the testing ground for a guy to make their mistakes. And we'll get onto this, but I think one of the most compelling cases for keeping Mikel Arteta is, well, you've suffered all the bad stuff. Like, you're suffering Mm. his pain, his growing pains. There's almost no point doing that if you don't at least see if you can reap the rewards of it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. But in Savaras' case, we don't have a choice. We'll never eat those rewards. He'll go back to Madrid. We'll be a few million quid down. Um, uh, yeah, he'll
2: end up going back to Betis or somewhere. Listen.
1: Maybe he'll be with Unai Villarreal one day. You never know. But um, it was a a kind of incredible performance. It's rare that you see a player so unite consensus You know, and people just like, this guy needs to get off the field. And so bizarre that the manager could not see that and concerning.
2: Why why do you think he's so averse to, like, the halftime sub, just to sort of put it in broad terms? You know, is it that he doesn't want to admit that the the system, the plan is not working? Is it that he has faith in the players to execute the plan? Is it that he thinks, okay, well, with a halftime team talk, we can improve, we can do better. I want to save my subs for a point in the game where they might have more impact. You know, assuming that you fucking actually make any subs. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I know that the the red card made it a bit more difficult last night. I mean, I, I think back a few weeks ago and... Was it um, Naby Keita that Jurgen Klopp took off in the first half of a Champions yeah, League game? It
1: was, yeah. And thirty-five minutes, forty yeah. minutes, yeah.
2: And like that's not great for the player, but at the end of the day, if you have a weak link in your team and you fail to address it, the 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 fault is yours as the manager. And I don't think if you do that in a game, people go. Ugh. Look at him, got it wrong. What a fucking idiot. I think the 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 general opinion would be, well, he got it wrong, but thank fuck he fucking sorted it out quickly rather than waiting for disaster to happen.
1: Yeah and it's interesting you know we talk about the negative effects of bringing somebody off early or at half time for that player potentially but maybe we don't talk enough about the potential positive impact that could have for the rest of the team you know a yeah. sense of this is not acceptable this is not good enough i'm i'm being uh taking action here to try and change things look we're not in Arteta's head we don't know my perception from the outside is that there's a plan and that there's a reluctance to diverge from that. That's how it feels, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Like let's, let's keep hammering and hammering and hammering this plan to the point where it either works or you've got no choice, but to try and do something different. Um, But as as it showed last night that, you know the the red card made it more difficult to change things because even though we brought Martinelli on, and I think he, he sort of had generally a positive impact, uh, and I do think we have to we have to acknowledge again the or be thankful for the fact that Emery is a really cautious manager because I think most managers in the situation that that they were in last night. They didn't have to change anything. They didn't have to change um, the system or change a single player because they had played pretty well. They'd scored a couple of goals. And if you get to 60 minutes, 65 minutes, and Arsenal haven't scored, and then you want to sort of be a bit more secure, make your change then. But, you know, they could have... They could have... Uh, who was it who came off? Alcacer, who came mm. off. Uh, they could have left him on. They probably would have been more dangerous. Another manager would have smelt blood and Emery could only smell his own armpits of fear.
1: <laughs> Shit, he shits himself. No, I mean, we we know Unai, you know, and we know that that's his nature. Um, and it was a huge frustration for Arsenal mm. fans in his time here. And we, we're grateful to it on this occasion because I think it surrendered the initiative. But... Um, yeah, I, I, it, it is a big concern about Arteta, that kind of... I saw Tim Stillman on Twitter, he called it pride, you know. He said, is he too proud to change that? He just strike me as a very proud person, for better and worse. And I yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, since he came into the club, we've spoken about substitutions. I think fairly consistently it's mm. an area where he's maybe not the best um and clearly nobody around him Mm. either has the authority or the knowledge to change that
2: yeah i mean it is an it is an issue um maybe we could discuss it in part two because i do have a question or two about it so let's do it but let's talk about our goal and let's talk about bakayo saka um he won the penalty. (laughs) Yes. Is is that another way of saying he dived? Um,
1: You know, you know, there's a dive. Look, I mean, it's look, yeah, it's gamesmanship for sure. Do you know what it is?
2: It's the kind of penalty that Wilfred Zaha wins against us all the time. It's that kind of a penalty. You know what I mean? Drive into the box, drive at a defender, leave your leg out, You know, expect him to hang a bit of a leg out and down you go. And Mm. I think that was something, you know, it was, it wasn't really a trip by, who was it, Trigueros. Um, It wasn't really a trip, but he put himself in a position where Saka could hang a leg out, go down. And there's some reward for at least playing with a little bit of intent and, and driving into their box and trying to make something happen. Also, Jose Marie in 2006 yeah. dived to win a penalty against Gail Clichy when we played Villarreal in
1: the Champions League semi final. So. Justice at last. Payback, motherfuckers. Listen, we spend a lot of time dying by the sword. Let's live by the sword every now and again. I'm with you. More swords. <laughs> uh, I mean, listen, it, Freddie Jumberg couldn't conceal it post-match. You know, He knew exactly <laughs> what Bukayo Saka had done there. And I think we all knew as well, but fair play. I mean, he's 19 years old. He found a way to get Arsenal back into this game. Mm. Uh, you know, you can only take your hat off to him, really. And of course, of course, I don't think that should be a penalty if it happens in our box. Absolutely not. But in their box, certainly. 100%. I hope Bukayo's is okay. Get the stretchers on. Uh, Should have been a red card as well. Um, what about Pepe's penalty? Scary? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was confident, but is fatalistic. Is that a really good penalty or a really
2: bad penalty? That's my... Uh, I think, yeah... He took the gamble that the goalkeeper was going to move. Like he picked yeah. his spot. You could see him. And it's it's the image on the, the podcast uh, post today is the image of him just looking at the ball. And the referee went over to have a word with the goalkeeper. And I was going, don't change your mind. Don't change your mind. Whatever you're thinking, just do it. Just do it. You know, it's the the the, the absolute undoing of penalty takers is when you go, mm, well, maybe mm, I'll try go the other way. Pick your spot and go for it. He picked his spot. He went for it. It went in. Like, I've seen more convincing penalties Mm. in my time. Uh, And I have to say, I was confident, but given everything that had happened on the night, had it sort of gone the same way as a Thomas Partey shot and ended up halfway down the road to Valencia, I wouldn't have been slightly surprised either. But credit to him. That's a big, big penalty, a big, big moment. You know, and he had to step up as as one of the senior players. You know, we, we have to acknowledge that as well. I, I think if there is, there weren't too many positives last night for me from mm. the collective performance or the individual performances, but I think Pepe was one. I think he worked really hard. I thought he did his defensive duty. There were moments where he got back and he, he made life difficult. I remember him stopping one counterattack in particular and... down, down to 10 men, knowing how vital an away goal is. He held his nerve. He put the ball in the back of the net. And beyond that, I don't think we need to analyse the penalty any further.
1: No, I agree. And I thought he was one of the positives. I think he's been the star, really, of our Europa League campaign, going right back to the group stage. We owe a, a debt to him for getting this far in the competition. And if we get to the final, I'm sure he'll be a big part of that too. Then... Mm. What happened next? They get a sending off? They get a sending off. I think, uh, look,
2: I think it's a little bit harsh on Kapu Yeah. because I think he slips and players were slipping all over the pitch last night. Obviously, they watered the shit out of the pitch. Um, because players were going over all the time. Obamian got a yellow card for basically the same thing, didn't he, where he was going in for a tackle slipped and it made it look a lot worse than it actually was. Do you think he was do you think he was genuinely injured? Or do you think think he was just too embarrassed?
1: in Spain, that he was absolutely fine after the game and that he would be available to play in the next game. (laughs) I thought that (laughs) as well. Which means he was like, if I just stay here lying on the floor.
2: maybe It's like that when you think uh, you're a kid, you think there's a monster under the bed, you just climb under the covers, and if I don't move, if the monster can't see me, he can't get (laughs) me.
1: The stay of execution was very funny. Just sort of lying there, being like, eventually they'll take pity on me and decide to rescind (laughs) this red card. I mean, he did slip. Yeah. He did slip, but I guess at that point he's he's out of control, right? And, uh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. You know. Like, I'm not complaining about the yellow card. I thought there was a moment as well where he was going to get up and then went, nah, I'm
1: just going to stay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think he was fine. I mean, I, I, I did say that I thought getting sent off and injured at the same time showed that the sort of Spurs DNA was very much alive within him. But um, apparently he was... Fine it is a good one though, on. isn't it?
2: it is one of the one of the good ones. remember we had a question from a few weeks ago about like what are the small things in football that you like or that right. are kind of really enjoyable Red card for a guy going off in a stretcher assuming he's not like really badly injured is one of them <laughs> you know I don't yeah. know I don't mean to say it for a guy who's like you know sucking down oxygen
1: with his leg in two places not that, but for something like that love it I enjoyed it too so so what were your thoughts? I suppose what were your thoughts when we got to 2-1 and then did they change at all when we went to 10 men? Were you like, what we have, we hold? Or were you thinking there could be more for us? No,
2: I, I was thinking if we can keep this 2-1, I'm so, happy. Like, Please I did, don't concede. Yeah, yeah my just life. don't concede. Like, if we can somehow get a goal, then great. But, like, keep the focus on keeping them out. You know, when it was down to 10 men each, I wondered if the game might be a bit more even. And, and to be fair to Villarreal, they finished pretty strongly. They kept giving the ball to Chukwueze to, to try and go at Shaka, who I thought dealt with him pretty well, you know, one-on-one on an individual defending one-on-one basis, which isn't ordinarily what you would uh, say is Granite Shaka's strength. I thought he did really well. I would ask the question as to why we kept letting that happen and why we kept letting that overload happen. Um, but to be fair to Xhaka, he he dealt with it pretty well. I don't know that there was any significant chance for Villarreal. There was pressure, and I felt maybe we were asking for trouble a little bit in terms of how we were... We were a bit sloppy on the ball. Like, Xhaka would win the ball from Jaquese and then give it away, or give it to someone else who would give it away and it come straight back. So I did have some concerns that we might just... The weight of that pressure might tell. Mm. Um, but I, I really thought... In the circumstances, two-one, given everything that's gone on in this game, is an acceptable result to bring back to London in the context of that game and how it played out.
1: Certainly, like I said, relieved. I mean, did you? Were you out of your seat when Aubameyang kind yeah. of went
2: through at the end? Of- what a pass! And what a what a uh, lovely. Take from Aubameyang to go around the defender. Yeah. I think he slipped a little bit as well, just as he hit it. So whether yeah. that is has- a little
1: bit wide, you know, it's it's mm. not an easy chance. Um, but you've seen him do it before. Seen there. him do
2: it before, and I, I suppose that is one of the encouraging things on the night. Uh, there was a moment where he he chased down one of the defenders, sprinted across the pitch. He looked quick. He looked sharp. Um, I'm I'm sure he was capable of more than. 5 or 10 minutes or whatever it was he got at the end. I think physically he was obviously capable of a bit more than that. Mm. So, um that that that's an encouragement uh for me as well. So look, it would have been amazing to go 2-2 what a what a result that would have been, but given how the rest of it played out, I don't think we can complain um about 2-1. I mean, we can complain about why it was 2-1 and all that kind of stuff, but in the end um you know, I feared we would be dead and buried by the time the second leg was kicking off and we're not. We're hanging on in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we've got, we've got a punch's chance, I think, in the second leg. Definitely. I mean, you know, I I wouldn't bank on us keeping a a clean sheet. um, But because they've got some good attacking players and I think we saw that last night. I mean, Shaquase was... I think you're right. Shaka did pretty well overall, but he was kind of a nightmare to play against. I mean, Mm. very tricky, you know, guy who always looking to come inside. Clearly, Moreno's a really good striker, got a great goal-scoring record. Um, So they've got players who can play. Mm. Uh, But uh, yeah, we're we're in it. We're in it. I I mean, I'd love to say we're in the same kind of position as United, four-goal lead and what have you, but... Um, we've got a long way to go if we're mm. going to get to this final.
2: Uh, one final point before we go to part two. I wish we'd played in our home kit. I know it makes no significant difference to anything, but I just wish we would.
1: What colour did we wear? I, did the I, kind I of
2: bluey greeny thing, right?
1: Yeah, I don't. I, I, I it irritates me as well when yeah. we do things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, they literally play in yellow. And that is historically our away kit. So how can it be a clash with our home? Yeah.
2: Right. Anything else um, that you want to touch on? Or will we deal with stuff in part
1: one. no. Let's deal with it in part two. All right. We'll be
2: right back uh, with your questions and more right after this. Welcome back to part two of the ArsCast Extra. This is the part of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter, at Gunnarblog and at Arseblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. From there uh, comes the first question from Gal Brenth, who says, Why is Arteta so bad with substations? which I uh, assume is uh, substitutions. Where you park your submarine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or electrical engineering. I don't quite know why Nikolai had a- <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that was a hell of a cough. Thanks. Um, I- <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Uh, yeah. Uh, you've really put me off my stride there. Thanks. Um, and <laughs> it will do that. Substation substitutions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I did like this comment from uh, Ash Richards 90. Someone was saying, uh, you know, what other coaches uh, do we need to do? You know, the set piece coach. He said, maybe we could get a substitutions coach instead. Uh, <laughs> but the, but the, the bigger question, I suppose, is, uh, you know, Mikel Arteta, substitutions, in-game management. Is he improving? Is it still a still a problem i mean there's a, a question here from arturo b who says could it be that steve round is the problem rather than arteta this broadens it out but he says as a figurehead arteta looks a good fit says all the right things and players seem to like playing for him does he need support from someone with more or better experience who is the guy on the bench who's saying to Mikel arteta get a off get him off now who's the guy do we need that guy
1: it's not Steve Round, I don't think. Um, if you watch Arteta on the sidelines, the tactical conversations he has are almost exclusively with Albert, Albert Steubenberg, um, in the course of a game. I'm sure Steve Round does chip in here and there, but it seems to me that that is the primary sort of tactical relationship in the team. Mm. So the substitutions thing, it, clearly it is a bit of an issue. I think, um, you know, we've, we've talked about it time and time again. I suppose the question becomes what is a reasonable expectation for what's a reasonable timeline to set for how quickly that should improve. And that I genuinely don't know because I've never watched this closely a manager in their first job. You know, it should hmm. it be that after half a season he gets it. Or is it something that does take years? I I honestly don't know the answer to that.
2: I wonder how managers view substitutions as opposed to how fans view substitutions. That's interesting. What do you mean? I, I just mean that from our perspective, if we're not playing well, it's like change something. If a player is not playing well, we're like, get him off. And I'm not saying those are unreasonable points of view to hold, but how many times has it been, how many times have you been at a football match where we haven't been good and you've been like, oh, I wish we would change something, I wish we'd change something, and then eventually we change something, whereas you or anyone else out there might have been tempted to change it. 15 minutes earlier yeah. you know what I, I mean uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, or, look, we, how many times uh, has that uh, happened how many times has happened where you go oh my god this guy's having a stinker get him off and when we do make a substitution it's a completely different player
1: mm-hmm. So, and then sometimes there are occasions where a player's having a stinker and then he nicks a goal in the last two minutes and the manager feels justified in leaving them on mm. all kinds of things happen I mean our, our patience as fans is obviously thinner than that of coaches mm. and managers generally um, but if you think about uh, Arsene Wenger and Unai Emery, the managers that we've had preceding Arteta, they did both appear, for better or worse, to be more decisive in the changes that they made. I mean, let's not forget, we saw Arsene Wenger bring off a player he had brought on because he was playing so badly. Mm. Um, in the case of Emmanuel Abue, we would see Emery make changes... At half time. Double changes. Uh, double changes, exactly. If he felt it was necessary. Yeah. Arteta doesn't seem to have that mindset. I think there is a... Yeah, I don't know if it's an adherence to plan A. I don't know if it's a caution. I don't know if he is dubious about the capacity of substitutes to influence games. Mm. Um, it, it, but there, there is clearly a bit of a reticence there. And... It's easy, obviously, when you drop points or lose a game to say he should have changed it. Mm. But I feel like it's an issue that comes up frequently enough that it is an issue. Do you think it's part
2: of the post-game analysis, the post-game briefing, I mean, we don't know, we can only speculate on things like this, but, you know, do you think when he and his staff sit down and they watch the games again, which I'm sure they do, to analyze what went right, what went wrong, what could have been different, do you think part of the discussion is, well, you know, maybe we could have brought on X for Y a little bit earlier, or, you know, does does that come into the thinking?
1: Yeah, I I think, I think, I hope so. You'd think that that should be part of analysis. I I don't know that for a fact, but surely uh, that must be part of those discussions. I do think that point of pride is an important one. And actually being a manager of a football team, you need a very delicate balance of forthright conviction in your ideas, Mm. but also a willingness to accept when you're wrong um it's like i'm writing a book at the moment as you may know mm. and i send it off to an editor and they come back and they give me notes and i'll be honest when they give me notes there's part of me that goes well fuck you yeah i mean <laughs> it, I, I the reason i the reason i gave it to you in that form is because that's how i thought it should be done and you know there's a degree of that with the manager in their team sheet you know they yeah, pick yeah. that team because they think it's right So to swallow your pride and to see that it's wrong, be that because someone's giving you advice or be that because something's unfolding on the pitch in front of you, that is kind of a skill. And treading that line between absolute confidence and humility is difficult. And it's something that I think Mikel Arteta is probably still coming to terms with. I mean, think about it like this. He's coming from a job where he was an assistant. And as an assistant, you only have to do one of those things. You only have to agitate. You only have to say, I think it's this. You should do this.
3: Mm. You
1: know what I mean? And then it's the manager's problem to be like, how do I weigh that advice? How do I implement that advice? Um, And and I do think that that is, it's absolutely reasonable to say that's an area that I think he's struggling with.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree. You know, and... In as much as it's understandable that an inexperienced manager has some teething problems with an area of the game or an area of the job, which is really important, one of the Mm. most important parts of the job is being able to influence a game or change the trajectory of a game while it's going on. Mm. Uh, And I think, whatever you think of Arteta you know, he's been a player for X amount of time. He's been an assistant for X amount of time. I know this is his first managerial job, but it's not as if the concept of substitutions is something he's just had to think about and deal with now, you know? So I'm a little bit worried that this is something we're not seeing any improvement in whatsoever. Like if you could say, well... Yeah, it's not great, but we're beginning to see him be a bit more decisive, as you say, or he's willing to try something, you know, to, to not like a last gasp measure or whatever, but, you know, little things that would give you some indication that this is, this is something that he is, he is um, getting better at or paying more attention to. Then you could take some encouragement from it. Mm. when it appears to be the same or worse, it's, diff- it's difficult, isn't it?
1: Well, I, I, you know what? To come back to what you said about fans and how sometimes we want to play off after 15 minutes, maybe that's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. That's ultimately a kind of instinctive, emotional decision. And I feel like perhaps Arteta from what we know about him is very determined to be analytical and reasoned and maybe that is mm. problematic
2: okay well that takes me very nicely to a question from jason doyle kbi who's at jd arsenal fan on twitter he says is arteta's biggest problem himself He constantly overthinks and overcomplicates things going against doing the most obvious, simplest solution. Have the players just had the shit confused out of them?
1: Hmm. I don't think the players have had the shit confused out of them. I have to say, I I still think that these players have really high regard for Mikel Arteta as a coach. In fact, I know that. Um, So I don't agree with that. But I do think, it's kind of as I was just saying that there is a bit of a tension between the intellectual and the instinctive potentially within Mikel Arteta. Um, and some people will scoff at this. You know, I'm sure a tactics expert would say, this is lunacy what I'm about to say. But sometimes the substitution is about feel or dynamic or instinct, or sometimes mm. it's a gamble. Sometimes it's a complete gamble that you just think, I'm just going to do this because it's different and see if that works and i think that in arteta there is a reluctance to embrace that
2: it's it's quite interesting isn't it in that we spoke earlier in the show or i certainly said earlier in the show that the deployment of this system was perhaps to do something that unai emery didn't expect Mm -hmm. could the same not be applied to substitutions like go against what your inst or your your head is telling you and do something that nobody is going to expect. Like I'm not saying put Matt Ryan on as you know your your target man, Yeah. but maybe there's maybe that is something he has to 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 reckon with himself.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Actually, what the idea that essentially if you're trying to spring surprises in your lineup, why are you not springing them during the game? Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's a really that's really well put. I think I think there is something there for sure and I think overthinking is right I mean because if you look at the games it happens in it tends to be big games or it tends to be games against managers that he's got some kind of relationship with and you know fears they mm-hmm. may know what he's going to do so I think he does overthink a bit I think that I think that I think it betrays a slight lack of conviction in some ways. You know, he he exudes absolute confidence and he has to. And he's had to since day one in the job because he walked in as a guy with no CV and, you know, no credentials apart from his time as an assistant. He had to win those players round. And in order to do that, he had to show absolute conviction and absolute belief at all times. But behind that, you know, there must be doubt. I think there is doubt. In, and you see it in within games with the slight reluctance to change things um, mm. how do I think it gets better? <sighs> I, I mean I've seen it you know mooted that maybe there's the requirement of another assistant in that team I personally would support that I don't think there's much chance of it happening I just think. Mm. Um, yeah, unless he,
2: Arteta decides it.
1: Yeah. And I think what last summer, when he hired two coaches, I think one in their 20s, one in their early 30s, he told us what he thinks about his coaching setup, that he has enough experience there. Mm. Um, so I don't foresee that changing. And then you get into the question of, well, how long? do you wait for something like that to improve, you know? Mm. And that's a tricky one. Um, Shall we have another question? Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, this is kind of on that theme. This is uh, from Matt Arsenal, who says, we all knew we were appointing a rookie manager 16 months ago. Shouldn't the fans be more realistic as to how long it will take Arteta to turn things around and about the fact he'll make many mistakes along the way.
2: I don't think that's
1: unreasonable. Mm. I also think that... I think a lot of fans are, are have been yeah, and yeah. continue to be patient. I think so. I, it, it'd be hard to kind of put a finger in the air and sort of say what, what the exact sentiment is right now. Certainly, I think there are more doubts about Arteta at this point than there were at the start of the season. Um, But I think there's been a reasonable degree of patience shown. Oh, I think so too. I think there has and continues to be.
2: But I think the patience is being undermined by performances and results that we know despite the inexperience of the manager are not acceptable for a football club like Arsenal like i i it's just ludicrous to think he was going to come in and be brilliant it's ludicrous to think that he was going to come in and not make mistakes it's ludicrous to think that an inexperienced manager is not going to have some teething troubles of course i think everybody recognises that mm. but it's how you then hold that up against losing to Burnley twice losing to Aston Villa twice with all due respect to Aston Villa you know things like that the approach in a European semifinal a huge important game and you you play a system which you've only used once before and it was terrible like it's those kind of things which I think undermine the very reasonable point that um, who asked the question
1: uh, matt it was matt
2: matt, yeah, it is a reasonable point, but the football managers are judged by results and performances, and even i would say i would say, and i can't look I, again it's it's hard to it's hard to be exact on this, I would say even the people who accepted and continue to accept. That there were going to be issues with appointing an inexperienced manager couldn't really have thought that we would lose what thirteen games in the Premier League. No, certainly. You know no. what I mean. So it's it's that it's those two things, and one of the one of the issues I suppose that we have discussed and um, that has given Arteta some kind of a safety net is this idea that. Well, we're making some progress. We can see the direction of travel we 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 take a step forward, we take a half step back, we take a little half a step forward, a quarter step back. you know it's not linear we we get that, but increasingly it's difficult to see what the direction of travel is other than having to keep turning corners because we. Put ourselves in the shit, you know what I mean. Mm. Like if we were a team that was playing really good attacking football and not scoring enough goals, you say, "Well, the solution might be to get you know better forwards or or what have you." It's still very difficult to understand how it is Arteta wants us to attack, how he wants us to create chances. Like, do you is that, not get the feeling? Sometimes,
1: do you, I'm not sure that's you, true. Well,
2: I, how do you see it? Because it feels to me like. We are a team whose idea is to create almost the perfect chance to
1: score a goal. I certainly think there's too much of that. Yeah, yeah.
2: and and and, and I, a big part of football is imperfection. That a goal doesn't it, yeah. have to come from 17 triangles, 18 passes, you know, and it's great if you can do that. But a goal can skid in off someone's arse. A goal
1: is Frank reacting. Like Parnell made a career out of <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> you know, hot a go- shots from the edge of the box that collected go- in.
2: A goal is being sharper in the box than somebody else. It's reacting quicker to somebody else. It's it's being able to create a moment um, by an individual. It's you know, I just I just feel like there's too much structure without the players of the technical quality to play with that structure. And then it just becomes this kind of war of attrition where you're asking players to do things they're really not that capable of doing.
1: Yeah, the the reason I slightly take issue with the attacking point is simply that I think since Emil Smith-Rowe and Martin Odegaard came into the team, there have been games where those two, Bukayo Saka, Nicola Pepe, Pierre-Ricke Bermiang, Alexander Lacazaire, have shown ways of combining that I think illustrate a potential attacking threat. And I think in, in the recent run of games, we've been without wow. a good number of those players. So I think it's, it's easily forgotten that there was some progress made on that front. I, I think you can kind of decipher a vision that is based around players like Smith-Rowe and Saka, in terms of how we want to play. But we're not there at all. And your point about us having lost too many games is absolutely right. And this is the the very, very... You know, I, th- I can't remember... What, I think we had this conversation in November when Arsenal were losing game after game. Football's a mental business because you are trying to balance the long-term with the short-term all the time. Mm. And fans want you to do both. But, truthfully, they care much more about the short term. Truthfully, they care much more about the full-time score on a Saturday. And that is defining. It's what gets managers hired and managers fired. And you can have a five-year plan. Or, you know, and Arsenal, I think, given where they are, how far they are off, where they want to be, given the ages of their best players or their most exciting prospects, people like Pepe, Martinelli, Saka, Smith-Rowe, given the age of the bloody manager, who's, you know, mm. not in 40. They should be thinking, in in my opinion, like five-year terms. But there's a problem with that. A, fans don't want to pay for the most expensive season tickets in the country to watch Arsenal be mediocre for another two years. And the B, the big problem is that Arsenal have, have not, since they moved to the Emirates Stadium in that early period then, found a way to communicate that idea in a way that supporters can buy into. Yeah. Because they always come out with some shit about challenging for the biggest trophies. And the disparity <laughs> between that and the reality of where they are now leads to supporters being unhappy. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe that if you could... This is quite wanky language, but if you could tell a compelling story about where you were going over the next five years, you would stand a better chance of getting people to be along for the ride, bumps and all. As it is, there isn't that clarity of vision, and so we just feel like we're going nowhere.
2: I think that's a good point. And it's not the first time that we have spoken about the the communication that comes from the club. And I think what's interesting is that generally, although he's become a little more difficult to listen to because results have been poor, Arteta is probably the best at that side of Yeah, that's that skill. So yeah, think. you know. One of his like, big skills. You know, if there are some... Uh, there are obviously people who want something different, and I think there are people who... um are encouraged by his acknowledgement of where Arsenal have been bad and what needs to improve and how we need to improve it on the pitch, off the pitch, culture, all of those kind of things, however seriously you want to take them. You know, Arteta's understanding fundamentally of what needs to be done is, I think, something that um, a lot of people can get on board with. It's the inability to match that with performances and results that is causing the problem, you know? Mm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Go C- on. Let me ask you a question before we move on because we've got a couple of questions about uh, the ownership um, hoo-ha, yeah. if you want to call it that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me see if I can find it here. It's about this weekend. Uh, okay. Zach Taze, who is on here. Oh, actually, before we go on to that, cluck the rotisserie chicken asked this, and it was something I was trying to figure out myself. Is Arteta lucky or unlucky? I can't for the life of me figure that out. And I was Based thinking on last
1: night or generally,
2: generally, I mean, he's been really unlucky about certain things, but then last night was lucky. And
1: well, some would say, so I think you could say, He's been so unlucky to be a manager in this terrible time of mm. pandemic and no, uh, you know, no fans in the stadium. And you could flip that on its head and say he's very lucky. There aren't that any he fans in the stadium. Get out clause and there's no fans in the stadium. Um, I think my overriding sense, and I know people will just say this is a bias because I uh, don't dislike Michael Arteta as much as some. Uh, I think he's been unlucky in the course of games. I think if you look at the decisions that we've had on things like VAR, I'm trying to be objective about it and not just have my Arsenal bias on. But I do think he's been a bit unfortunate in that regard. Mm. But I think the wider context of was the, would these results be acceptable to paying fans? Certainly not. Mm.
3: Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. It, it's, uh, but the thing is... It, Again, this is sort of, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't really matter if he does everything right. It doesn't really matter if he's a brilliant tactical mind and a great communicator. You know, if he doesn't get results, ultimately that Mm -hmm. only means so much. And it makes you popular among your players and among your staff and among your executives. But you need to win games and he's not doing that enough at the present
2: time. we don't do enough. Okay, here's a question from Zach Taze, He says, would you play either of, well, either, there's loads of them. Uh, He said, would you play Aubameyang, Tierney, Lacazette, Louise on Sunday to build up a bit of match fitness or sharpness, or do we have to risk that they're ready to go full throttle on Thursday? And there was another question I had here on Twitter. Let me see. Uh, Yeah, it comes from Joe, who's at Red and White 11. Said, Odegar looked off the pace last night, which is understandable. Is it worth getting some minutes into him and potentially Tierney-Louise or Bamiyang at the weekend to get them sharp for next Thursday? (laughs) Or is it better to rest and not risk any further injury? Where do you find the balance between this essentially meaningless game on Thursday, given the importance, or on Sunday, rather, uh, against Newcastle, against the importance of Um, beating Villarreal in the second leg at the Emirates where, you know, our record isn't great. (laughs) Uh, You know, so how do you you view that
1: one? Well, having just said it's important to win games and results for everything, blah, blah, blah. I promise you, I don't care about the result of Sunday. I really, really don't care. I, I can't remember many Premier League games where I've cared
3: less than this. (laughs) Um,
1: I don't know if that, that must just tell you about, you know, where our domestic season is, I guess. Um, However, I do think it's a useful opportunity to potentially get some minutes in those legs. I, you know, ideally you want Keir and Tierney to play against Villarreal next week. I think there's a pretty good case you want David Luiz to play against Villarreal next week.
2: I think you want Gabriel to play against Villarreal next week.
1: Yeah, probably with Luiz. And then I think um, certainly one of Aubameyang or Lacazette. Now, I I think what you do with those players at the weekend varies. So say someone Mm. like Kieran Tierney, I wonder if, like you know, half an hour to 45 minutes might be enough for him. Um, Whereas, I mean, this is a medical decision. I guess they'll make it on that basis, but someone like Aubameyang, maybe he can do an hour. Like maybe there are players who will need more game time than others, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I'd start Aubameyang if he's fit enough to be on the bench. He's fit enough to start a game, um, you mm. know, particularly one in which we can take him off after an hour if we want. And realistically, you know, it's not going to make a huge difference to our season. You know what I mean?
1: Mm. Um, we could take him off after an hour, but of course, Mikel Arteta doesn't do that. So he's he's guaranteed seventy two minutes. I think
2: he'll take him off in the ninety fourth minute <laughs> to put Willian on to make sure Willie gets his contract. Yeah, in that appears. was strange. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think you're right. You know, Aubameyang could start. Louise could start. Gabriel should start at the weekend. I think we need to get we need to get Hector Bellerin back in the team at right back. Um, Cedric at left back, and then you bring on Tierney for the last. 30, you know, 20, 30 minutes um, to give him a run out if he's fit to do that. You know, if he is available to do that. He's way ahead of schedule. Way ahead. You know, the fact that he was in contention for the game um, tells you he's ahead of schedule because it was like a four to six week injury and that was only three weeks ago. So, uh, you know, as much as the game doesn't matter, I think it is a useful exercise to get some of these guys back onto the pitch, get some playing time, get a little bit of rhythm um if they do have an error in them get it out of you against newcastle because you know like i said the damage as much as you know i can't say like you i don't care about what happens against newcastle i do mm-hmm. because it's a game and once the game is on i want us to win and if we lose i you know i'm i'm not going to be happy about the fact that we've lost because i think there is still in as much as the 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 premier league season is irrelevant There's still uh, a badge to play for, a shirt to play for, pride to play for, and people might laugh at those kind of things, but they're important. They are important. If you actually want to make some progress, you don't just meekly accept defeat just because you've got a bigger game coming up on Thursday. Because that kind of mindset runs through a football club like a fucking bad pint on a night out and the next day you're on the toilet and it's not good you know mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. i i do think the newcastle game matters in that sense it's not like the points are going to you know catapult us back to where we no, need no. to get to but i just think in terms of the approach the attitude what you're willing to accept as a, a football team as manager as players we need to see we need to see something
1: Oh, yeah, I want them to care. I want them to play like it matters. Sure. I want them to win. I just mean that I won't... Um, mm. I'll, I'll get over it, I think, if we don't. But it, 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 the priority for me has got to be mm. getting these players in shape for Thursday because, based on what we saw last night, we really, really need them. Okay. Um, okay, Here's, how about this one from Not Max? A tweet to the past says, disregarding the terrible performance... Thank you for that, not Max. Do you think last night's result may actually help us in the second leg? With the pressure on against Slavia Prague, we were excellent in the second leg. Whereas against Olympiacos, when the pressure was off, we really struggled.
2: Second leg against Olympiacos was at home, right?
1: It was. Yeah. Yeah. And we drew, I think, didn't we? Yeah. We, um, oh, we, lost, we lost. lost. Can't remember. Can't remember. <laughs>
2: How quickly we forget games that we were mad about at the time. Um,
1: Well, they all blur into one at this
2: stage. Does it help us? I mean, look, what we have to do is obvious. We have to score at least twice. Mm -hmm. At least twice. To win. So, if it means that Arteta leans into the attacking strengths of the team... I know we have issues with creating chances and what have you, but if there's a part of the pitch in which we we have strong options, at least, it is that. So no fannying about with a false nine, get a centre forward there, put three good players behind him or three technical players behind him, give uh, Thomas Partey a little less to do in midfield like he wasn't great I thought against Villarreal but he still produced um he still produced that great pass for Aubameyang and I would say who can play well when you're carrying a 12 stone sack of Spanish potatoes on your back like mm. Ceballos? so you know structure your team to its, to its strength and go for it so I mean in that sense it's Yeah, what we have to do is clear. Whether we can do it or not, that remains to be seen.
1: Yeah, I guess we'll see if there is a plan to attack, Mm. um, because that's what we need to do.
2: Okay, here is a question from the Discord from JT, who says, Daniel Ek's takeover bid seems unlikely to succeed. However, with former players on board and Ek seemingly happy to play the long game, could they function as a kind of pressure group for the Cronkies? And I think I had another one here. Uh, no, I'll come back to that one. So I've got another question to follow that up with, but your thoughts on that one first.
1: I think that's their intention. You know, I, I think if you look at the way Daniel Eck and the other people involved have gone about this, they started on social media. They've then gone via the media in other means. I think clearly their hope is that at the next Cronky out protest. There's a few ek in placards. What the ek? Yeah, exactly. And I I think that that is their intention that they want to make this a public battle. Alish Oshmanov tried the same tactics with the Cronkies. You know, he was very explicit in terms of I would put money into the club and I've been an Arsenal fan forever. Um, Maybe it felt a little bit more hollow coming from him. Mm. But ultimately, it didn't move the Cronkies. And I don't see, I have to be honest, I don't see this uh, having a great impact either. I mean, I, I heard Arsenal Vision, I, I don't know if it was on their Patreon feed or their normal feed, but they had a really good podcast with a giant gooner, Matt, who works in this takeover field. Mm. And he was saying, if I wanted to do a deal with the Cronkies, I would... You know, I would find a way to make personal contact with them. I would befriend them. I'd get them on side. I'd say this football club's gonna end up costing you money. You know, you, are you sure you want to be dealing with this hassle? Yeah. I'd be doing my business privately, and I strongly suspect that that would that would prove more successful than what we're currently seeing. What do yeah. you think?
2: I just don't think that if you want to buy a football club for two billion pounds or more. And I'm struggling to understand why any businessman would want to pay two billion pounds for a club like Arsenal at the moment, you know, given the uncertainty in the, in the market, given the lack of success and the fact that we appear to be sort of a mid-table treading water team, leaving aside the fan credentials, because, you know, that's a, I thought that was an interesting part of Daniel X's interview where he said, I love the club, I love the players. And of course, I love the fans. I mean, you love the fans, really? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, uh, you know. I want fan engagement. Blah blah blah. You were well briefed on that. Um, I just, I just don't think a coherent, well thought out takeover bid comes from a tweet and then an interview on CNBC. Like, I don't. I don't. I can't say. He said he was serious, so we take him at face value. He says he secured the funds, so he's got the funds. Um, I imagine that means we're looking at a, a, a leveraged buyout kind of scenario where the loans are put on the club, same way as the Glazers did uh, with Manchester United, and you're talking £2 billion worth of finance that the club will then have to somehow service so i'm not sure it's that positive um like i don't think they are there to act as a pressure group for the cronkies i don't think that's the intention but if their presence sees the cronkies react then maybe that's the best we can hope for i don't see any real possibility of Daniel Eck buying arsenal i would be hugely surprised Mm -hmm. And I think Matt, I haven't had a chance to listen to that podcast yet, but I think he's absolutely right that if you, even if your, your, your approach isn't like, come on, let's be friendly. Look, you know, I'll take this off your hands, chaps. Even if it's not that, I think you're misjudging KSE and the Cronkies if you think you can or should go about this the way that he has gone about it so far.
1: I think it has almost the opposite effect. Yeah, exactly. I
2: think even there was a quote, wasn't there, doing the rounds um, from Arsene Wenger during the week. He was on B in Sport and he was asked about it. And it was like, I'll help whatever Arsenal, whatever way I can, as if it was, you know, him siding with the Eck deal. And it wasn't really, it was just a really throwaway comment going, well, if Arsenal want me to help, I'll help whatever way I can. It wasn't like, I want to get involved in this. But he made the point that he was like, deals like this, they don't happen. Uh in public. in public. You find out about them when they're done. That's how you find out. I mean, that was what happened with, with Usmanov. You know, in consistently end, yeah. he said, I'm not selling my shares, I'm not selling my shares, and Kronky said, I'm not selling my shares, I'm not selling my shares. And then, you know, there were some whispers for a little bit of time that, that Usmanov was maybe willing to sell, and then it just happened one day. You're done deal done all done in the background nobody knew jack shit about it and it was done and that's how these things happen they don't happen because a very rich Arsenal fan put out a tweet at a highly emotive point of the season during the protests and all of those kind of things I just don't believe that's how this can happen even if he's got the best intentions that's not the way it works
1: I fear that's the case yeah
2: um, did I have one more? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, okay. Jack Clark, who's at Jack Clark Fifty Two on Twitter, said the club has broken its transfer record three times in the last four years, as well as spending big sums on many other players. Is KSE out and Cronky out, masking the fact that investment has been provided and that the underperformance is primarily at technical and managerial level?
1: Ooh, it's a big question and I've got to run to another meeting soon. So I will try and answer it quickly, which is that I think Arsenal have spent quite a lot of money in recent seasons. And personally, I don't object to the club being self-sustaining. I There are elements of that that I like as a supporter. I know other people may find that ridiculous, um, but there's a kind of value in that that I appreciate. I think that there has been underperformance at managerial and technical level. And I think that people's issue with the Cronkeys. a lot of people aren't saying it's about money. They're saying it's about oversight and a lack of expertise, perhaps at boardroom level, mm. to, to ensure that the executives charged with spending that money do it properly. What do you think?
2: Yeah, look, I think there are people who... who
1: Oh, there are what, definitely what, loads who want us to spend money. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. I mean, why do you want a new billionaire owner so the billionaire owner will give you money to spend? That's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not criticising that, but that is the reality. People want us to spend a lot of money. I do think that we have spent money. Um, the question is, have we spent it as well as we could have spent it? Spent it? Have we spent it as well as we could Spensive. have spent it? Spend it anyway. You know what I'm trying to say. It's been a while uh, during this recording, um, and we've also let far too money or far too much money walk out the door for nothing. So there are issues at technical and executive and managerial level. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, KSE and the Cronkies have have been, you know, part of that. They're the ones who allowed that to happen, and that. I think comes to your point about people who will talk about oversight and absenteeism and everything else. And for me, you know, I think it, it, it comes down to a lack of robust process when it comes to hiring and putting people in place, uh, who make the decisions at your football club. Mm -hmm. And that, Mm -hmm. if there's anything at all that might come positive from this, and I don't think a takeover is going to happen, I don't think KSE are going to sell. So if there is going to be a positive from this, it's that they look at their processes and they look at how they hire and fire people and they get somebody good to manage that part of the club rather than just say, oh, well, we'll let Raul Senyahi be head of football because Ivan Gazidis liked him. Look where that ends you up, you know? Yeah, I agree. The problem is they have to get someone good to do that job. So, you know, if only there were people out there who specialize in recruitment at executive level in football um, that they could talk to about something like that. Anyway, look, you, it sounds like you're itching to get away, so we'll leave you uh, – when are we doing another one? When Are we, are we doing – Sunday. Sunday.
1: We're doing a Sunday one.
2: Doing a Sunday evening one uh, after Newcastle. Uh, So, yeah, let's see how much we care on Sunday evening, will we? Exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll retract all my statements. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, thank
2: you all for listening. Really appreciate it as always. And we will catch you in a couple of days' time on Sunday evening. Until then.
1: Bye-bye.